Hello and welcome to the Harger Report. My name's Edward Harty and for today's interview I'm joined by State Senator Erica Smith who's running to replace North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis in Congress. State Senator Erica Smith, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ed. We're happy to be with the Harder Report today. Why did you decide to run for U.S. Senate and in particular against Senator Tom Tillis? I've been a public school, high school mathematics, chemistry and physics teacher for about 17 years now. As an educator, I serve an underserved community in northeastern North Carolina. And as a teacher, I also ran for the local school board to um, effect policy that would drive student success and empower them with the resources that they needed. As an educator and on the school board, in 2009, the Republican Party took over the North Carolina General Assembly. Tom Tillis became Speaker of the House. In his first 100 days, he led an assault on public education. They laid off 5,000 teacher assistants to assist in the lower grades and elementary school levels with students from four to six and seven, eight years old at that critical juncture um, in their growth process. They also took away master's pay for educators. They took away career tenure. Under his leadership, the assault on public education motivated me as I was struggling as a school board member to try to advance public education and provide opportunities for students, but be severely restricted by some of the mean-spirited um, policymaking that was masterminded by Tom Tillis. As an educator, I had a five-point lesson plan that I decided to take from the classroom floor to the state capitol floor, and I became a North Carolina state senator three terms ago. Now I'm in my third term, six years later. And once again, Tom Tillis's failed leadership has inspired me to run for United States Senate so that I can return humanity, integrity, and common sense policymaking to get our nation and our state moving in the right direction. You talked about his record when it comes to education based on your experience as someone who's worked in the teaching profession. There are those that believe America's education system is broken, that teachers don't have the resources to properly educate their students, sometimes having to pay for resources out of their own pocket. And college is becoming unaffordable for average Americans. As a former teacher, what would you do to fix America's education system? Uh, well, first and foremost, I would re-engineer policies. Before I became an educator, I spent 10 years in corporate America as a defense and space uh, mechanical engineer. And as an engineer in corporate America, I learned uh, business principles, uh, policymaking, understanding, maneuvering the dynamics and the negotiation process for integrating products for best outcome. As an engineer, we optimize our policies and we optimize equations in order to get the best product. So the first thing that I will do is re-engineer our education policies who are in dire need of a massive overhaul. Um, I, I see education as a education marketplace. Every child is not cookie cutter. And so because every child is not cookie cutter, we need to provide those educational environments 
that will allow students to be successful and put them in the environment that is most conducive to their progress. In doing so, we have to allocate resources at earlier grades. So we need to initially start off by making um, resources, financial resources, more affordable for three and four-year-olds to start school early. Um, we also need to do early childhood education in terms of birth to three years old, and that's going to require re-engineering our policies and appropriations so that we are putting more funding um, in the community for parent um, development, parent skills, um, providing early opportunities to engage learners so that, that they don't start off behind. I'm also a very uh, big proponent of looking at student-centered funding. So when you have more affluent areas, those students have, traditionally, they have a stronger educational heritage, and they've been exposed to resources by virtue of their socioeconomic status and um, having wealthier parents, and so they have stronger educational experiences prior to starting school. But when you go to high poverty area areas, you are challenged with a lack of resources. So with student center funding in the more affluent areas, you fund those students at an appropriate level, let's say $6,000. But in the high poverty areas, you're going to have to fund at maybe $9,000, $10,000 in order to close the learning gap. So um, engineers, we re-engineer re policy to make it more effective, but to also make it work across the broad spectrum. Um, secondarily, we need to teach, uh, we need to treat teaching as the profession that it deserves as an honor. Um, I look at other countries, other developed countries, Switzerland, Denmark, and the great job that they do with educators as a profession. In our part of the state, North Carolina, our part of the nation in North Carolina, we have an average teacher pay that's, that's lower than the national average. It's hard to recruit and retain educators. Um, the third thing that I look at in terms of you're looking at resources for students and then resources for the professionals who serve in education. And thirdly, we need to look at having a workforce um, connected 21st century curriculum um, education program K through 16 years of education that will promote having career and college ready students. College debt is a substantial burden for young Americans and Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders has proposed making college free in the U.S. and erasing all student debt. Would you support his proposal or something similar if that was put to the floor of the Senate? Now, now there were some great proposals out there. I don't know that I would support the, the proposal in full. But I do know that, number one, we must do something about the massive school debt and loan debts. Um, we are almost making college unaffordable, and we're creating a permanent underclass because of that. Um, I myself, who aspired and, and, and got higher degrees, I have a loan debt in excess of $50,000, and so I am right there. I understand because I struggle with school loans myself. 
Um, I'm a big supporter of workforce programs that will erase um, school student loan debt. Um, one thing that I have been working on, you know, we have Teach for America, where if you go teach in an underserved area, you get to have your school loan forgiven. I'd like to see that extended not only for educators in the Teach for America program, but educators across the board. Um, the federal government already has a 10-year program that if you uh, serve in a public service capacity or governmental job, um, after 10 years, after paying a certain amount, then you can have the balance of your school loan forgiven. I am looking at innovative ways to provide opportunities for farmers we are trying to get millennials and, um, and re reintroduce people into the agriculture uh, um, economy and system. And a lot of students have so much college debt, they can't even think about the capital-intensive process of going into farming. Agriculture is the number one business in North Carolina to the tune of um, $1.84 billion, $84 billion. And so when you look at how important agriculture is to our uh, gross um, G, um, GDP, we have to make sure that we are protecting that industry. And we're not going to get off on a caveat right now and talk about the tariffs and how farmers are really suffering. But I would like to see um, loan forgiveness for millennials or for students with high loan debt who are willing to go into farming so we can keep that agriculture economy growing and thriving and surviving in our state. I believe that we can do loan forgiveness across the spectrum, um, working with corporate America, partnering with companies as well as nonprofits to create an exchange relationship for recent college graduates to be able to have a portion of their loans forgiven through a work service um, program with an entity that does good in the neighborhood, for lack of a better way to uh, couch that. Um, I do believe, though, um, what I would support that Sanders has um, proffered on several occasions is to looking at making community college as free as possible. Um, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six hundred dollars with grant opportunities available would um, be a tremendous benefit to empower not only students to be able to access higher education, but also for retooling the workforce through apprenticeship programs so we can get everyone working again, even in our underserved rural communities across the state and across the nation. One of the main parts of your proposed policy platform is economic expansion. Do you believe that the Trump administration and the Republican Party have neglected average Americans and the state of the U.S. economy in order to line the pockets of large corporations, millionaires and billionaires? I'm glad you asked that question, um, Ed, and, and I fully agree with the premise. There have been large populations of Americans left behind by the Trump administration's economic or lack of an economic expansion. When we look at the racial wealth gap, it is astonishing when you look at the net value of African-Americans compared to other demographics in our nation. And we know through um, the slave trade and slavery, African-Americans built this country and, and spent 300 years building this country with no compensation. 
Uh, I think from my platform, I start off with the premise and the understanding that we're going to have to analyze once again and re-engineer for optimization and enhancing outcomes. We know our rural parts of the nation felt left behind. Uh, we, we have urban industrialism, um, but in the last three decades, we've had declining population, loss of manufacturing jobs, lowering prices of ag commodities, um, and now recently the Trump tariffs. They are leaving swarms of the um, of, of the demographic across the nation behind. And we're going to have to intervene and do better. I believe one of the best ways to do that is to make strategic investments in water and sewer infrastructure. Many of these small town America um, have aging water systems, aging sewer systems, and the local governments just don't have the resources to be able to rebuild. But I believe with that relationship from the federal to the state level uh, with the proper investments in infrastructure, broadband, ag innovation, biofuels, to name a few, that we can revitalize these rural economies. And when we have all the economies growing, because we know the statistics clearly show that the rural parts of our nation are not growing as fast as the urban centers, we need to um, look at strategic and targeted investments to advance that and um, close that wealth gap. I I am very much in support as a Main Street Democrat. I have strong proposals and have advanced policy and legislation in my three terms in the North Carolina Senate that have um, targeted emphasis on revitalization of these rural and underserved communities through partnering relationships with our larger um, urban centers and corporate and small businesses to create those types of 21st century jobs. Um, that will help expand the workforce. Last but not least, I support many components of the um, Green New Deal. I believe that energy jobs are the way to go and investments in our um, clean energy mix, uh, reducing our carbon footprint. We not only promote environmental stewardship and address our issues with global warming, but on the flip side of that, we create a whole system and, um, you know, sort of an incubator for new jobs in the 21st century so that we can get our workers back to work again. You mentioned the idea of focusing on creating jobs for the 21st century. We've seen areas like Detroit in Michigan particularly hit by the changing workforce in America. Factories are closing. People are moving into newer technology and types of jobs. How would you help those workers retrain, re-enter the workforce? And how would you prepare individuals in your states for the jobs of the 21st century? It goes back to what I shared in terms of my educational experience and looking at having a 21st century workforce connected emphasis um, on our, not only our K through 12 programs, but on apprenticeship programs to get workers um, retooled for these 21st century jobs. We know, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that um, the, the rapidly growing um, industries of, of um, solar and wind energy are leading right now and also personal care. By looking at investments 
and in our, into our community colleges for apprenticeship programs, short-term workforce training, because everyone does not need a two-year degree or a four-year degree. Um, many times, we don't even need a 12-month certification. We can certainly do short-term workforce training that will change the lives of um, people who are working hard every day just to make ends meet. I want to share this with you. I do a lot of graduation speeches as an educator, and I do high school speeches as well as community college graduation speeches as well as four-year university. One of the most moving graduations that I participated in was for a short-term workforce training program that um, certified workers in the solar panel maintenance and installation industry. There were 97 graduates in that program. Of those 97 graduates, 50% of them were graduating for some, from something for the first time in their lives, Edward. They had never graduated from high school. Some of them had not graduated from community college. Others of them had never attended higher education training at all. There was a student who was selected to be the student presenter on behalf of her class. This young lady spoke about having three part-time jobs, and she had three children. So her life was spent, her day-to-day was spent waking her children up in the morning, getting them off to school, feeding them breakfast, getting them off to school, and then she would go to job number one. She would work at job number one until two o'clock in the afternoon. She'd wait for her children to get off the bus. She would make sure they had dinner. And then an hour later, she was going to our second shift job. She worked her second shift job until 10, 11 o'clock at night. She came home, made sure her mother could be picked up to babysit her children while she went to her third shift job that started at midnight. And then she would get off at six o'clock in the morning and start the process all over again. She worked around the clock so much just to make ends meet that she could not tell her two children apart from each other that were 15 months in age difference. And she was just saying she just started crying one day because she was so tired. She was missing out on her children's lives. She couldn't even tell the two children close in age which one was which. And she said something has to give. All uh, Within um, two weeks of graduation, before two weeks before the graduation, 85% of the class had already received job offers. She was included and she was had, she had a job now that paid her $21 an hour installing solar panels and providing the maintenance. She was able to quit those three part-time jobs and now work a job that enhanced the quality of her life Not only did it change her life, but it changed the life of her three children who could see their mom and spend time with their mom and be a family again. And so these are the type of jobs that I'm talking about for the 21st century. And when we retool the workforce through apprenticeship programs or short-term programs, we change the lives of parents, the lives of families, the lives of communities, the lives of our state, and we make our nation stronger. The middle class has been left out. I am, you know, I'm outraged at the tax cuts and the government spending and some of the fiscal policy that was um, 
that was orchestrated by Trump's administration that took money from the poor to give the wealthy more. This so-called Tax and Jobs Act of 2018, I myself, as a public school educator, I'm paying 3,000% more in a tax penalty than I did in the, under the previous um, tax act that was under President Obama. And so we clearly see that this administration has given tax cuts to the wealthy 1%, and they are balancing our federal budget on the backs of hardworking, middle-class, blue-collar, I mean, you know, blue-collar workers, and we need to change that. We're really not balancing anything, Ed, Edward. Let me throw that in there because we're, we're amassing, what, $22 trillion in debt? And I'm not even going to go back and start talking about what President Obama had to do. He was forced to do sequestration and make all of these ridiculous cuts in the safety net programs because this GOP didn't want to work with him and they wanted to control the national deficit. But now where is their control and their concern about us approaching the largest national debt we've ever had in the history of this nation? It's very hypocritical. Talking of the performance of the economy, we've seen how instead of the Republican Party and Donald Trump focusing on boosting the U.S. economy and putting forward policies that will help the U.S. economy in the long run, we've seen actually that the policies they've implemented have led to a situation where President Barack Obama's last 30 months in office outperformed Donald Trump's first 30 months something that isn't actually talked about very much by the No, media. it's not talked about. Yeah, you're right. Obviously, to win the seat in North Carolina, you're going to have to unseat Senator Tom Tillis, who took to Twitter recently to attack you, stating that you have, quote, stood in silent support of decriminalizing illegal immigration and giving illegal immigrants free health care before he went on to state that, quote, there is nothing refreshing about open borders and decriminalizing illegal immigrations. How do you respond to the senator's attacks on your positions on immigration? Is he mischaracterizing you? Is he putting forward a view you disagree with? What's your response to him? Okay, well, well, well first of all, I'm, I'm not into name calling, but I, I really do have a problem with Tom Tillis wanting to be a libelous labeling, you know, loose lip flip flopper uh, that he is. I think in my response to him, I called him a Disney character. I don't know if he's flipper or, you know, <laughs> Flipper, the dolphin who uh, was in the Disney movie, or if he's Pinocchio on any given day. We have watched Tom Tillis come out against Donald Trump and say that he's going to make a stand against the emergency declaration to build the border wall, only to see him flip-flop the next day. And so I welcome Tom Tillis to a debate. I have reached out to his campaign just to get a response. He's on a six-week break, and we contacted his office to try to figure out if there's a time that he's going to hold a town hall, which he's never done in the five, five years since we sent him to Washington, D.C., and he's not accountable to the voters or the electorate. So he is in no position to question me about where I stand on the issues. I make that very clear. 
Let me step to the side just for a moment, Ed, to share this with you. Of every candidate in this U.S. Senate race in North Carolina, I am the only candidate on the Republican side, Democratic side, or even anybody who would run unaffiliated and independent. I am the only candidate in this contest who has listed a comprehensive platform on her website so voters know where I stand. Still today, with five years in office, we don't know where Tom Tillis stands because he flip-flops from one day to the next. I have a comprehensive immigration plan that I will be unrolling. I mentioned some of it on my website, but I will be unrolling this um, in an op-ed. I start off with the premise that I am not sitting back saying that we should decriminalize immigrants crossing the border. I am saying what is constitutionally correct. I don't know if Tom Tillis has read the Constitution or if he's forgotten what he swore to uphold. And it is not a crime to seek asylum. It's not a crime to seek amnesty. So I want to reject the premise of him using the word criminal with immigrants seeking asylum in this nation. I am outraged as, as a Christian, I'm embarrassed as an elected official that we are putting kids in cages at the border and Tom Tillis and Donald Trump are supporting this crime against humanity. You want to talk about what's criminal, Tom Tillis? It's criminal to cage kids. He would not want any of his children or grandchildren placed in a cage. Because of adverse childhood experiences, there are cognitive, um, there's cognitive damage being done to those children, of which they may never recover from. The atrocious uh, treatment of immigrants in these detention centers is unacceptable, it's unconscionable, it's un-American. And instead of trying to call me out on Twitter, Twitter for decriminalizing immigration, Tom Tillis needs to call out his president and these detention centers and call for a closing of these concentration camps, because that's exactly what they are. And I call on all Christians and all Jews and all Catholics who see this going on. We can no longer as Christians or as believers in a universal power, we can no longer sit silently by and not challenge Tom Tillis on throwing this rhetoric around. I'm about working for results. Um, in my comprehensive immigration platform, his is called the Succeed Act, and his his proposal takes 15 years. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. No route to citizenship should take 15 years. Um, in the converse, under my platform, which again, People know where I stand because I've articulated that on my website. Um, I support the DREAM Act, but in reengineering policies, as, as engineers do, I um, certainly want to make sure that we can access um, important um, routes to citizenship that may include, there's a big complaint about 
immigrants receiving health care and benefits from the social safety net, but yet they're not paying taxes. So if you're already here, I would support you getting a green card. That way you can work and you can contribute to the economy. Um, you can also pay your taxes and then we will take away and remove that grind for folks. Um, I don't think that we need to put up walls. We need to invest that money where it should be invested. And that's um, protecting our borders through a comprehensive immigration plan. I know that you say you're not into name calling, but do you think that flip flopping is not just a trait that you would attach to Senator Tom Phillips, but the whole Republican Party? Because you see other individuals in the Senate, like, for example, Senator Lindsey Graham, who was fervently anti-Trump during the presidential campaign. And he's now <laughs> Donald Trump's biggest supporter. You see that with other members of the Republican Party and how they've changed their stance to defend the president. So would you attribute that trait to the whole Republican Party, not just Senator Tom Tillis? Right. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney, to some extent, has done it. Also, Marco Rubio. They have totally flip-flopped. I would say that the Republican Party, they are flip-floppers. And when you look at the, the level of flip-flopping that they have done, um, when it comes to simple concepts like re demanding the sequestration and all of those social safety net cuts um, under President Obama to keep, the, keep control of our nation, rising national debt, only to turn around and just give free range and not challenge Donald Trump on that is, is ridiculous. What you will also notice is that a couple of weeks ago, when Donald Trump came out um, and attacked the wonderful people of Baltimore, when President Obama was in office, Donald Trump complained about Baltimore being infested. He said it was the responsibility of the president in the White House to fix Baltimore. And he said if he were in the White House, he would take care of fixing Baltimore. Now you see the flip flopper that he is in the retirement in the entire Republican Party turn around and Donald Trump after he was uh, disgraceful in his comments about Representative Cummings and moreover the wonderful people of Baltimore who are innocent in this after he disgracefully and, and talks and characterizes them in such a disgusting manner, he turns around and blames another black man for what's going on in Baltimore when before it was the responsibility of the president in the White House. Flip-flopper all day long. And then you can't forget the other character that they become. They become a Pinocchio because they are constantly lying about the issues. Donald Trump recently held a rally in North Carolina, a rally Senator Tom Tillis was in attendance for. Yes. At that rally, Donald Trump's remarks about four Democratic Congresswomen encouraged the crowd to direct chants of send her back at Representative Ilhan Omar. Senator Tillis did not condemn those chants or Donald Trump for whipping up a sentiment that fueled them. In fact, he defended Trump, saying that he does not have control over the crowd. How do you feel when those chants are made in your state and your senator, Tom Tillis, fails to challenge them? Um, that just shows not only is he a flip flopper, but he's spineless. And he places partisanship over the priorities of people and common decency. I thought, first and foremost, that 
it was shameful for him to be in the crowd sanctioning, sanctioning this type of discriminatory conduct and racism. Tillis stood in that crowd and did nothing, nor did President Trump do anything to stop the chance of send her back. And the ridiculous thing about chanting that to these four women that we call the squad is that (laughs) one of them came in through the same process of which he brought in his wife and her entire family. Representative Ilhan Omar has, in fact, been a U.S. citizen for six years longer than First Lady Melania Trump. Yeah. And so how he stands there with a straight face and condones this, not only does he condone it, he invites it. He he just throws lighter fluid on it to incinerate it and make this fire grow. And I dare say um, the hypocrisy of it all is that this is someone who said that he was going to talk to the president of Puerto Rico when there was the flooding crisis. And I'm like, dude, you are the president. <laughs> and so he doesn't even understand um, the fundamental documents and the basis for this country. And I dare say all four members of the squad have a better command of the English language than many times President Trump. He makes up words that fit his discriminatory narrative. And it's just really sad that he would want to attack these wonderful, powerful public servants who are doing their job to represent people. We can't ignore the tragic mass shootings that occurred within 24 hours of each other on the 3rd of August in El Paso, Texas, and the 4th of August in Dayton, Ohio. At the time of recording this podcast, 31 individuals were killed in total across both of those mass shootings. It's restarted the debate around how to tackle the issue of gun violence in America. If elected to the Senate, what would you seek to do to curb gun violence in America? I commit to this within the first 100 days as the next United States senator from North Carolina. I will file, I will fight for, um, from proposal to ratification, common sense, comprehensive gun control. Um, that gun control legislation that I support today and are fighting for today and will continue to fight for until we have this um, would involve universal background checks and have the um, necessary 10-day waiting period for the response. It would have a ban on assault rifles and bump stocks. Um, it would close the gun show and retail owner loopholes and transfers from owners to owners. Um, that cannot happen without a background check. I would also institute red flag limitations so that um, provided access for loved ones um, of their, and family members to petition to remove firearms from owners during periods of incapacitation, um, whether that be mental incapacitation or otherwise. Um, I think that that is a bipartisan measure that's found support um, not only across our state, but across our nation. I think it makes sense for comprehensive gun control to include funding 
to have more um, public service uh, campaign um, to for all public buildings, including school buildings, our universities, our community colleges, and it would embrace the Sandy Hook promise. Um, and and that Sandy Hook program involved a public service strategy that's been implemented in high schools and um, educational learning programs across the state and nation that promote more education awareness and steps, simple steps, one, two, three, to handle a um, mass shooting crisis, but to also look at the indicators that preceded Many of these mass shootings, like the surveillance on these Antifa and um, white supremacist websites, I believe that we need to put more resources and funding for tracking um, not only the individuals, but tracking the nationalist organizations across the nation and which we've seen a rise in membership. With the El Paso shooter, there was a manifesto that was um, – just incendiary. And in that manifesto, it not only taught how to enact or to perform the mass shooting, but how to surrender immediately to law enforcement so that you can live to see your success. And with that being said, I believe that a comprehensive response to mass shootings necessarily includes criminal justice reforms as it relates to prosecution and sentencing of domestic terrorists. And these domestic terrorists, we need to put everything back on the table. The punishment should be commensurate with the crime, and it should include a discussion of capital punishment. Now, um, we, we can talk about that more in depth. I'm against the death penalty, um, and as a whole, because historically it's had a disparate impact on poor people and people of color. And plus, the statistics show that it's not a deterrent to crime. But when we've had more mass shootings this year than we've had days this year, then everything has to be back on the table for discussion as we look at curtailing this exponential rise in mass shootings. A couple of things that I want to add as we look at the statistics on mass shootings and measures that we can take. In um, 1994, you know, President Bill Clinton and Congress um, had a ban on assault rifles and mass shootings decreased by 43%. However, in 2004, George W. Bush and that administration, they allowed um, the ban to expire. And since that time, mass shootings have increased 236 percent. According to the Gun Violence Archive, we've had, um, as of August the 5th, there were 217 days of the year. There were 255 mass shootings. There were um, a total of 8,796 deaths across the board and 17,480 injuries. With something of that magnitude, Edward, I'm just outraged that we continue to have politicians 
playing games and not willing to stand up and protect the public safety and the lives of people. How many more deaths is it going to take? As a high school teacher, um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in, in Valentine's Day, the Valentine's Day massacre in 2018, my students, I was very supportive of them because they had a massive walkout um, and, and exercising their First Amendment freedom to stand up as children to fight against gun violence, and it's sad that children have to stand up against it, and we have elected officials who are put in places of power and who can do something, and they won't. Presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke, whose hometown is El Paso, Texas, criticized Donald Trump's rhetoric after the shooting, calling the president a racist, saying he believes he's a white nationalist, and comparing his comments to those made in Nazi Germany. Um, do you agree with Better O'Rourke that Donald Trump is a racist and a white nationalist? And do you believe that the rhetoric Donald Trump is espousing bears some responsibility for not just the mass shooting that happened in El Paso, but stoking racism in America? Absolutely. Donald Trump is guilty of stoking racism. Um, um, I um, tweeted and talked about a, um, um, a rally that he had. And at that rally, Donald Trump was talking about these invaders at the border. What are we going to do with all of these invaders, these immigrant invaders invading our country? And someone in the crowd yelled out, shoot them. And President Trump, instead of taking a firm, strong stand of which every American would be proud of, he took the coward's route and he laughed, openly laughed and said, shoot him, Uh, we can only get away with that in the panhandle. And wouldn't you know, a shooting occurs in Texas of which 22 people are murdered in cold blood. He absolutely stokes discrimination, hateful speech. And this speech is a, an accelerant of a flame of white supremacy. How does he dare say during the um, Charlottesville um, riots that, well, we have good people on each side of this issue? How can white supremacy be good? How can hate organizations be good? Our president shouldn't be talking that way. I agree with Beto that the media has to start calling this what it is, and they have to start calling out our leaders, whether it be Tom Tillis, who won't take a stand because the NRA bought and owns and operates him, or Donald Trump, or Mitch McConnell, and all other elected officials who accept this money from the NRA to sit complicit and silent while people are being murdered and shot down in cold blood. They need to speak up. I Agree with, with, with Beto O'Rourke wholeheartedly that the president has to stop this race baiting and this, um, this hate speech. More than that, he's got to stop trying to look for all of these other reasons that were possible motivations for these mass shootings. Then he wanted to blame it on video games, and that is not the case. Just a distraction so that he can take away from his actual conduct and how it precipitated this hateful crime. 
that occurred in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso. The National Rifle Association spent $1.6 million during the first half of 2019 lobbying Congress against laws that would enact stricter background checks, particularly against HR8, which was passed by the House, a bipartisan proposal to introduce tougher background checks and gun control, um, as I say, supported by Republicans and Democrats. Mitch McConnell has refused to allow a vote on that in the Senate and to get any gun safety legislation like the one that you were talking about that you want to see implemented in your first 100 days would require bipartisan support. Two points. Firstly, Senator Tom Tillis took money from the National Rifle Association, recently received $2,450 for his re-election campaign. Would you pledge right now to never take money from the NRA at any point due to their lobbying efforts to ensure that gun control legislation doesn't pass Congress? And secondly, how would you work with Republicans, many of which do receive money and are pressured by the NRA to oppose gun safety legislation? First and foremost, I have already taken the pledge to not accept any um, money from corporate PACs and special interest groups. I unequivocally reject the NRA. Um, not only has the NRA contributed to his re-election bid, but Tom Tillis is in the top five of recipients who receive money from the NRA. The NRA has bought, paid for, and are operating the puppet springs, pu- puppet strings of many of our elected officials. And so that is why they keep compromising to the NRA and allowing them to determine their level of support for gun control. His integrity is compromised. He's unprincipled. Anyone who would sacrifice the lives of Americans and allow people to continue to be gunned down in cold blood so that he can continue to accept dollars from the NRA is unprincipled, unconscionable, and unfit to continue to serve as our United States Senator. Tom Tillis keeps flip-flopping. He has not even made a statement. Um, We've been tracking it. We've called him out. We had a survivor of the Charlotte shooting that occurred in North Carolina um, a couple of months ago. He has written to Tom Tillis' office. Tom Tillis called him. His office called him as Say, we want to hear from you. What would you like us to do? What do you think are some measures we can put in place? And he solicited this young man's uh, support. The young man wrote him an open letter. He has yet to hear back from Tom Tillis. And so he's disingenuous because he's bought and paid for, owned and operated by the NRA. I unequivocally reject the NRA and other special interest group. My priority is to serve the people of North Carolina, to put their safety first and foremost. We have the power to do something to end these mass shootings. And I have the political will and the plan to do it. And um, unfortunately, my opponent, with his unprincipled approach to this, he um, has, has already capitulated to the special interests of NRA. Um, you asked me another question about how would I work um, across the aisle. 
let me explain to you my experience. When I was a freshman legislator in North Carolina, I was in a Republican supermajority. Now, despite being a member of the minority party, who is minority herself, double minority, because I'm an African-American woman, I received the award for legislator of the uh, freshman legislator of the year by the State Employees Association of North Carolina. And what that speaks to is the strong business background as well as public service and governmental background that I have that has empowered me to be able to maneuver the dynamics to put aside the things that we disagree on and find common ground on what we can agree on. Most Americans support red flag laws in that you don't put guns in the hands of people who are having a mental crisis or a psychotic episode or who are um, at risk of being involved in domestic violence incidents where they could take someone's life. And so certain charges prohibit people from even having a gun in their possession. That being said, we need to extend that to red flag laws that will have the removal of guns from those who do have a permit and do have possession during moments of incapacitation. And that's um, a component of H.R. 1112 that Mitch McConnell won't allow to be heard. When we look at the state level in North Carolina, I'm supporting my colleagues in both the House and the Senate. We have several bills that have been filed more than 120 days ago and that are just sitting there. I guess the GOP is waiting for another mass shooting. Enough is enough, and we need to pull together and do what's right. As you were mentioning there, the Republican-controlled Senate, led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, has refuse to allow a vote, let alone even consider working with the Democrats on bills that have been passed by the House. Hundreds of bills are sat there waiting to be voted on by the Senate. In your view, is this reflective of why it's so important for Democrats to get out there and campaign and flip these seats, particularly ones like yours in North Carolina and take back the Senate, because if the Democratic Party wants to take back the Senate, there isn't a path to doing that if they don't flip seats like the one you're seeking to take in North Carolina. Um, Absolutely. That's why all of America, not just North Carolinians, but all Americans need to understand the importance of the U.S. Senate races for 2020. We have some great candidates from across the nation. Um, we, we have a wonderful candidate in, in Kansas and that we've been in communication with as well as South Carolina. First, we need to understand that, uh, and, and Mitch McConnell earned the name, nickname appropriately. He's being called Moscow Mitch. He absolutely hates it, but not to the point that he will allow um, a proposal to protect our elections to be heard. So when we look at um, the, the issue of Cambridge and Analytica, who is the company that um, compromised voter information, confidential voter information, and there was a recent settlement with Facebook to the tune of, I believe it was, what, five 
what, $5 billion, which was probably not enough. But not only did Donald Trump access and use this information from Cambridge Analytica, but Tom Tillis used this information from Cambridge Analytica to gain an unfair advantage in his election. Um, so what we need Americans to know is that just like we took over Congress, we must gain the majority in the United States Senate. The United States Senate has not only not held itself accountable to serve the people of America, but they have not held our president accountable. The U.S. Senate has three critical roles. And of those three critical roles, they have failed in every area. They have to protect our borders. They have to protect our elections from foreign entities. They get the opportunity to place the next appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court. Americans need to understand the critical juncture that we are in. We have to control the United States Senate and have an economy for our future prosperity. And they are failing because we have weak leaders in place who have um, extended or overextended their welcome. They're no longer effective because they place their personal interests and pay priorities over policies that will move America forward. Um, I thank you for asking that question because I need um, us to understand as we move into toward the 2020 election, I am the best candidate to take on Tom Tillis. Uh, the contrasts are startling. I'm the only candidate in this race, as I said before, that has a platform. So America, Americans and North Carolinians can hold me accountable to do what I said that I would do. I have the most experience from my experience as an engineer in corporate America to being a public school educator as well as an ordained member of the cloth. Uh, we definitely have lost our standing across this nation. Uh, Donald Trump always says, make America great again, when everything he's done is make America hate again. And I would like for America to be respected again. And I would like to get America working again for everyone, not just the wealthy and the rich elite. I'd like to make America work again for us, the people who elect these senators to go to Washington, D.C. and represent us. When we look at the whole primary as a whole in North Carolina, North Carolina in North Carolina, the 2018 primary, 62 percent of the Democratic primary um, were women. And 2016 and 2018, for those who voted in both of those primary Democratic primary elections, 43.3% were women, of which um, African-American women made 28.5%. And so, um, Ed, I know you have had on your show um, various elected officials and politicians in the past across our nation, and we've seen the faithful black woman voting block. We saw what that black voting woman block did in Alabama with Roy Jones, who had not had a Democratic senator in 25 years. We are in 2020 where we need more Democratic senators. We have to take the majority in the United States Senate. The black woman block was faithful in getting uh, what, what it did for Stacey Abrams in Georgia, um, Andrew Gillum in Florida. 
So being the most faithful voting bloc, um, I am positioned to, in a multiple candidate contest, to gain the plurality, not just on virtue of my experience, but what the electorate is saying they want in their next leader. And to reinforce that point about you being the best Democratic candidate to take on Senator Tom Tillis, I don't want people listening to rest on their laurels when they hear about polling because the election is a long way off and it's important to get out there and campaign if they want to see you take the seat and flip it for the Democrats in 2020. But a poll that was conducted in June 2019 by Emerson College showed that you were leading Tom Tillis by 7% in a head-to-head race, 46 to 39, with 15% of voters undecided. So it's not a done deal by any long measure. The, uh, the election's a long way off, but it shows that at this early stage, you're already convincing people in the districts that you are the right person to take him on and to be elected. Oh, and, and we are very, ex- we were very excited and very happy about the Emerson poll results. We were definitely not surprised because everyone in North Carolina knows that in Senator Erica Smith, they're going to get someone who's going to be working hard. Um, I know by no far stretch of the imagination that this poll is going to be the end-all, be-all. It is just a start, but it's a great reference point to show the statistics of that number. Not only am I the only Democrat beating Tom Tillis, I'm the only Democrat, Republican, unaffiliated, or any other candidate in this race who is leading the entire pack, including the incumbent, outside of the margin of error, because the margin of error was three. Um, there was a subsequent poll, the TRIP-P uh, polling, public policy polling, that was a week later, um, or well, two weeks later after that poll. And even that poll showed that Cal Cunningham, one of my Democratic challengers, was only one point ahead of Tom Tillis, and that was within the margin of error. And incidentally, not only was he only one point uh, within the margin of error, so statistically, basically statistically tied, As an engineer, I'm all over the numbers, but there were more people undecided in that race. 19%, almost 20% were undecided. And so um, what North Carolina voters are clearly saying is we want a new type of leader. We want a leader who has been out here working. Um, I've been out here. I'm the only candidate who's worked my way up through every level of the party and my diverse um a career experience, 17 years, best, best leveraging. And so I've had uninterrupted service, elected grassroots community leadership for the last 17 years, whereas Cal Cunningham has not held an office in 17 years in North Carolina. Even with Tom Tillis, when you look at his leadership service and you compare it to my leadership service, once again, I have more experience than Tom Tillis. And the breadth of my experience um, definitely shows that I have the business acumen as well as the strategic um, um, strategic platform that will move us together forward in a progressive manner. I'm also the only candidate, um, Ed, who who has a strong commitment to push results and work and not rhetoric. I'm the only candidate 
who has made a commitment, not only made a commitment, but fulfilling the commitment of covering small towns in all 100 counties. I visited 34 counties, held um, events and meet and greets in 34 counties. And I just don't, you know, I'm the type of candidate, because I grew up with very humble beginnings, I grew up on a farm in northeastern North Carolina. My dad was in the um, Air Force, and we traveled around the world and around the country until my dad retired. There are six children, five girls and one boy. I have a twin sister. The only way to tell us apart is I have a, um, a mole on my cheek. She's a biomedical engineer. Um, my discipline was mechanical engineering. Uh, one of my other sisters is a, a, an industrial engineer and senior vice provost at a university. And my other three siblings, one of my siblings is an engineer at the shipyard in Newport News, Virginia. And I have my eldest sibling who is retired as a public school teacher, and um, my third eldest uh, sister, who just retired as a superintendent for a public school system. We have a family with a demonstrated track record of military service as well as service to our community uh, through, through education. But I am the um, only one who has placed the needs of people front and center in my platform. I hate all of this big money in politics. I don't like dark money in politics. I think it's absolutely ridiculous when I analyze previous elections and I see that Kate Hagan and Tom Tillis, when they ran the first time, it was the most expensive race in the history of the United States. It was over $100 million spent in that election. And there was about $30 million spent on negative attack. Um, TV ads. And when polls were done before the ads and after the ads, it didn't move the needle that much, only a little bit. Do you know how many people we can feed, Ed, with $30 million? And so at my meeting greets, I know that we have two, three issues that our campaign has identified um, as needs that we are addressing um, in our campaign. One would be the food insecurity. Children are um, most vulnerable. Children, it's about 21% of children on average in North Carolina who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. So at all of our meet and greets, we ask our um, visitors and the citizens and the attendees to bring a canned food item. We donate that canned food item to the local food bank, and we also leave a check with the local food bank from our campaign. We also allow when people give us contributions, um, each quarter I'm making donations to two initiatives. One would be um, beds for veterans. My dad um, really suffered um, after his service. He, he was in Vietnam. He was in the military for 21 years, and, and he suffered PTSD. And um, many of our veterans, after they um, protect us and, and save our lives, they need more resources after they've served their country faithfully, and we can do a better job. So one of my initiatives is to make sure that we are um, taking care of the people who took care of us, and so we make quarterly, we're going to make quarterly donations to Beds for Veterans. And the last thing we're going to do is, um, being that I grew up in a rural area with humble beginnings, working hard on a farm, 
um, harnessing the resources of the land to make opportunities for everyone. We are donating um, to a telemedicine program that will allow um, allow three doctors in each of the areas that we are going to, the seven regions that we're working in, to be able to provide telemedicine for underserved populations because we have not expanded Medicaid in North Carolina. And it will also provide much-needed treatment for our veterans. And hopefully, ultimately, we will be able to increase resources to be able to deal with um, some of the mental health resources that are needed as we look at addressing mass shootings. State Senator Erica Smith, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And I was happy to be on the Hardy Report. We look forward to great days. We look forward to continuing our wonderful relationship. Thanks, Ed.